Hello, and welcome back to That's So Second Millennium. I'm Paul. Bill is out, but he's going to participate virtually because he has left me a list of questions. So let's get to it. This is episode four, Complexity, Cosmic Evolution, Change, and Certainty. Well, that sounds grand, doesn't it? There's no way we can deal uh, do justice to all of that in a single half-hour podcast, but we can at least get started. All right, we're going to pick up from where we uh, the discussion has been after the last two episodes. So we've been seeing if we can take the old, two millennia old at least, basic metaphysics of the Greek world, the medieval world, of hylomorphism, of form and matter, and seeing how far we can take it in terms of understanding modern physics, understanding the universe as we now see it after the scientific revolutions of the 17th century, and then the way those theories have been turned over and extended beyond all, almost all beyond recognition by 20th century physics, especially quantum physics. So, hylomorphism, it means form and matter. In the understanding of modern physics, we'd have to equate the matter concept with mass energy, just like Einstein taught us. We know that particles can be converted. So, an example, if we have a bit of mass energy taking the form, the form, of an electron, that's a very well-defined form. We know exactly how that bit of mass energy is going to behave. We know that it has a negative charge. It's going to be attracted to positively charged particles. It's going to move in a certain direction in electric and magnetic fields. It has a certain mass, so those fields are going to act on it and deflect its trajectory according to a particular set of equations that we have the numbers for. We know exactly, we can calculate in a known magnetic field exactly how far the uh, electron's path will be deflected if it's going at a certain velocity, and so on and so forth. We know, <clears throat> in fact, we know its form in a way far more precise than any ancient or medieval philosopher could hope to have known the form of any objects that they were familiar with. <clears throat> Electrons are all identical. So every instance of an electron has that exact form. It's not sort of the same. In fact, the only accidents we have about the electron are the position of its wave function, so to speak. You know exactly where it is in space. Uh, well, of course, we can't know that exactly. We can't, we can't, as a matter of fact, know its exact position or velocity, but nevertheless, we know exactly how it's going to behave within the limits that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle imposes on us. So, in fact, in a way, hylomorphism works better than it ever could have in the Middle Ages, which is a strange uh, thing to contemplate. It turns out to be, if anything, potentially more useful than it was in the year 1200, despite the fact that no one uh, thinks that much about it anymore. Certainly not in the context of modern physics. And of course, form not only dictates how this bit of mass energy is going to interact with other bits of mass energy, well, it's, it not only dictates how it's going to act on its own, but it's going to dictate how it interacts. So an electron and a positron, two bits of mass energy, are going to interact in a certain fashion, depending on their mutual velocities and positions, they may interact in such a manner as to change from an electron and a positron into different bits of mass energy, photons, which will carry away the mass energy of the pair if they interact and they mutually annihilate. The mass energy, the matter, in the ancient philosophical sense, will be conserved. The form will have changed. 
there you go. In fact, it works really well. So, <clears throat> and of course, we don't have simply... We have in modern physics this base level of objects, these simple particles that, unless strings actually exist, which I am in no way qualified to say whether strings actually exist or not, people are debating it. String theory has been around for a while, and some people are convinced that it has stalled out and is maybe a dead end. Um, but in any case, unless particles are made up of even simpler things like strings, which is entirely possible, the, the base particles, the electrons, the quarks, the neutrinos, the photons, the gluons, and so forth, may all be composites of still simpler particles. In any case, they are they obey certain rules and they combine, they themselves definitely combine to form even higher order composite particles. Protons, neutrons, protons and neutrons and electrons will then assemble to form atoms, different atoms of different types uh, that fall under the categories of different chem chemical elements and different isotopes. Atoms together will make molecules, they'll make crystals, they'll make amorphous substances, uh, they can also make liquids and gases. And so, as we get to higher and higher levels of complexity, there is a little bit more fuzz. After all, crystals all have defects, a collection of molecules is probably not all going to be exactly the same. In fact, molecules have extra degrees of freedom, they can bend, they can rotate, they can do things that electrons can't. They can be in different positions in a way that electrons can't. But nevertheless, there are these composite levels of rules. And that's what's really fascinating about the world, is that it's made of such, you know, identical little bits. And yet, these bits can interact, and the, in their interactions, they create higher-level rules. And so that's where the term I'm using, cosmic evolution, there are many different ways to express it. Um, but that's one word that you can use to express this sense, this recognition that the universe actually is made of these very basic particles. They're all identical, and yet we have the enormously diverse universe that we see, and the enormously diverse planet that we inhabit, and we ourselves are incredibly diverse. So every level of complexity has its own rules. They don't wipe out the rules below. Um, the old rules all keep operating, and so... In a sense, as I said last time, we've, we've blundered into possibly resolving a medieval dispute between those who believed in, you know, that, that it was at least more sensible to speak of a plurality of forms, or whether you simply had one substantial form and everything else was an accident. Really, you know, so if you take the example of an aluminum atom, why this came to me as I was reading Bernard Larnagan, I don't know, but, you know, take the example of an aluminum atom. Let's see, let's count. Fluorine is 9, neon is 10, sodium is 11, magnesium is 12, aluminum is 13. Aluminum has, an aluminum atom has a nucleus with 13 protons in it. A somewhat variable number of neutrons, there are a few different isotopes of aluminum, and it will, a neutral aluminum atom will also have 13 electrons associated with it, although neutral aluminum atoms are not all, actually all that common. Most of the time they're sharing their electrons with their neighbors or possibly existing in some sort of ionized state. But all those protons and neutrons and electrons are all continuing to obey their basic rules. At no point do they give over obeying the basic rules for their level of complexity. But they also now obey different rules at this higher level of complexity represented by the atom. So, for example, in a crystal, in a mineral, which is usually 
in in that context because of the cosmic chemical details of what happens in stars there's a lot of oxygen around for aluminum to bond to in most cosmic environments where it's cool enough to be in a combined state it will tend at low pressure like at the surface of the earth to combine in such a way that it's either in a cluster it's an aluminum atom will be housed inside a cluster of either four or six oxygen atoms that's its nature that's a higher level rule of complexity the geometry the size of the atoms the size of their electron clouds and the charge that will the the charge differences that will happen as the electrons try to find stable configurations through sharing all of these will lead to an aluminum ion that we can approximate as a ball of a certain size oxygen ions that can be approximated as balls of a much larger size and the aluminum ion will hide inside cages of these coordination uh, polyhedra of oxygens in such, such and such a fashion. So those are the rules. Those are the, the rules of complexity. And of course, as we go up and up and up, we talk about in geology, we can build from, from crystals, we can build rocks. And from rocks, we can build planets. And planets have their own structure. From atoms combined into molecules, of course, we can eventually build living things. And living things have so many levels of complexity we couldn't begin to enumerate them all we sat and laid them out we would be working on it for a very long time so and what's interesting is that over time we're familiar with the concept of evolution and biology that we started from some one presumably one possibly more than one but presumably very possibly some a single living cell strange enough to think about if you if you stop that a single living cell might have been the ancestor of every living thing that we see in this incredibly diverse surface of this planet that we inhabit. So that's a, starting from a low level of complexity, although a single living cell is already a pretty high level of complexity from my perspective as a mineralogist. Um, that's, that single cell has obviously grown into some uh, a, a, an enormous number of uh, complex beings you know again multiple levels of complexity it's gone from single cells single prokaryotic cells to eukaryotic cells the distinct organelles to multicellular life which then allows you to have cells differentiating into different tissues and different organs and so and all of these obey their own rules every one of these composites has their own sort of set of rules that arise somehow spontaneously from the rules of the lower lying simpler entities which is very strange really if you sit and think about it for long enough the universe was in some way just ready for these accidental convergences that then begin somehow instantiate a new set of rules for them to follow just like in my field you know, these uh, a planet warm enough large enough and warm enough with a uh, soft enough interior will start to create the process of plate tectonics that we recognize and all of the different levels of complexity mountain building things happening at the edges of plates all of these are also an emergent set of rules from the simpler behavior of atoms at certain temperatures arranged in certain crystal configurations at certain pressures so that's that's what i wanted to sort of start out the episode with 
and to 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 contemplate that oddness of how the universe was ready for these sort of accidental convergences. So let's get to Bill. Bill had four sort of separate things, but they really blur into each other. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read his text, and then I'll stop and make some, uh, and then I'll and then I'll go back and comment on some bits and pieces. So. Bill starts off, you're saying science leads us to think increasingly about a plurality of forms. This is exciting on one level because the more we learn, the more possibilities we're going to see. Star Trek's writers had a concept called IDIC, Infinite Diversity and Infinite Combinations. But since our pursuit of synergy and knowledge in this podcast attempts to both use both faith and reason, I'm thinking that some people of faith are going to distrust this IDIC because it opens a lot of unclear areas that are neither black nor white, wrong nor right, this nor that. Some observers of the modern world would say that our society and the way we approach issues have lost their moorings in solid reality because we're focused on diversity, everything being in flux and a shade of gray. I agree that we have to update our basic perceptions of reality just as we update our scientific knowledge. But is it possible that our focus on change and uncertainty has done damage to the certainties of faith that have anchored society for centuries? Is this really at the core of the whole evolution debate? Is that debate a proxy for a bigger debate about an intellectual culture based on change that we human beings can control versus one based on unchanging truths that control us? Is this the kind of dead end of discussion that our society seems to be approaching? Can you use an example from science about how the new focus on change and mysterious new discoveries will inevitably clash with old ideas that you might call second millennium? More optimistically, are there examples where they don't have to clash, but some kind of synergy might be found that opens up new understandings? Alright, so that was from Bill. IDIC, let's go back to that. I'm going to try to hit things more or less in order. Uh, I am only familiar with that concept because my brother had a Star Trek poster in his bedroom um, that mentioned this concept. I have no recollection of it being trotted out in an episode. I didn't recognize it in an episode or a movie, and, and let me tell you, I watched Star Trek 2, 3, and 4 far too many times when I was young. Um, I don't remember it coming out there. So... What does that mean? Infinite diversity, infinite combinations. Well, that's... There's a physical principle that comes up in that context um, that, that evolved during the 20th century, and it states that anything that's not forbidden is mandatory. And that means a lot of things. And in a sense, it means that the universe, and in particular any macroscopic system, I'm in a laboratory, I have a bottle full of hydrogen gas. There are so many molecules in any bottle of hydrogen gas that I can manipulate with my hands that they're essentially occupying every possible every possible geometric configuration, every accessible energy state has at least one hydrogen molecule in that state. So if something is going on in that, you know, some, something is going on that's mathematically permissible, that's not absolutely forbidden by the laws of quantum physics, or, you know, that the probability is higher than one in... You know, I would embarrass myself by putting out a number one in the quintillions or sextillions or something like that. Anything with a higher probability than that is going on somewhere in that bottle of hydrogen molecules at this moment, at any given moment. So, and of course, you look at the broad universe and you just can't help but guess, you know, there, well, certainly there must be planets that are almost identical to Earth, at least in the sense that they started out with the same physical 
composition. They started out, actually, probably, with a carbon dioxide atmosphere and, you know, rocks of a certain composition, a certain amount of, you know, the dominant elements in the Earth's crust being silicon, aluminum, oxygen, silicon, aluminum, oxygen's actually first, then iron and calcium and magnesium and sodium and so on down the line. Those are the biggest ones. Those are the most common ones because those uh, crystallize into solids and then condense into planets. So, and, and this process, there's nothing special about that process at this corner of this galaxy. And there are how many thousands, how many millions, uh, again, I would embarrass myself, I don't know the number um, of galaxies in the observed universe. There must be planets that are at least physically just like Earth. It's then a question of just how unlikely it is for life to arise, and then if life arises for life like us to arise... Um, to guess whether there are aliens, whether there's extraterrestrial intelligence, whether there are other things, looking at the universe and asking anything like the same sort of questions that we're asking of the universe. Which is, I take it, what the IDIC in Star Trek meant. Um, so, of course, this, this latter sort of case of IDIC is really uncomfortable because we have no way of checking. I mean, realistically... Since we don't have starships that can go at Warp 9, whatever Warp 9 meant in whatever uh, generation of Star Trek you're talking about, uh, we don't have the ability to go and explore the whole galaxy, let alone the whole universe, to look for intelligent life. It is, if, if the laws of physics that we know really are, you know, the bounds that we can't transgress, and we can't figure out how to make an Alcubierre drive work, which, you know, I suppose I shouldn't uh, put that past us, but if we can never effectively, you know, get past the speed of light, you know, relatively speaking, between stars, eh, well, yeah, well, we're not going to find out. That's going to be too difficult. Uh, and so we'll never know. And that's really hard because the human sort of bureaucratic mindset, and this is, and again, I'm, I'm calling it the bureaucratic mindset, as speaking as someone who works in environmental science, and thinking about things as a scientist, as someone with a research background, then coming into this sort of applied field. A doctor, by the way, is a scientist. And an, they're trying to do a very similar thing to what an environmental professional is trying to do. As an environmental professional, what do I do? I go to a gas station and I'm trying to find out whether there's a leak. I am confronting reality and trying to find out what the actual situation is. I am not trying to impose my ideas on reality like an engineer. That's a fundamental disconnect. That's a fundamental difference in outlook. So when you have your, quote, mad scientist building a whatever in the basement, a common joke among us scientists is that that's really a mad engineer. That's what you're talking about. That, that's a complete uh, disconnect from what scientists do. I mean, we do have to become engineers in a sense if we're, say, building a new piece of experimental apparatus. And a lot of us in science actually are sort of more engineers than, than we are scientists in that perspective which is fine. It's, there's nothing intrinsically good about being one versus the other. But as a scientist, I'm trying to confront reality, just like your doctor should be attempting to confront reality and say, what do these symptoms actually indicate? What tests should I actually run in order to have the best chance of getting at the truth, rather than just, you know, trying to get patients through the office, and uh, if I see one or two characteristic system symptoms, I'm just going to prescribe medication X and get them the hell out of here. I've had some bad run-ins with doctors. Maybe you have as well. Um, that's not to... I'm not trying to tar all doctors with that brush by any stretch. But those do exist. Um, and the, it's better to avoid them. 
it's better to avoid that. But that brings me back to the bureaucratic mindset. So, when in, in circa 1970, when this country started passing environmental laws and regulations, we knew so little about the actual details of how contaminants spread in the environment, and we knew so little about the actual health effects, which chemicals caused cancer at what, you know, what risk, because that's what we're really talking about, right? We're always talking about risks. There are people who spend 95 years drinking whiskey and smoking cheap cigars, and, well, they live to be 95, and they die in their bed. Um, maybe those aren't the odds that you would calculate, but it happens sometimes. My great-aunt, who died at almost 103, often commented that if she'd known she was going to live this long, she would have taken up some more bad habits earlier in her life. Because um, she didn't really necessarily want to live quite that long. And live all of her friends and family. But, we, we have this tendency to want to believe that we know, even in, in the face of... So, and so, environmental regulation, in the face of all of this uncertainty... Nevertheless, if you're going to have some kind of regulation, you have to have some kind of rules. And those rules become fossilized and sacred and entrenched, and even so they are. You know, OSHA works the same. OSHA and the EPA are suffering, you know, from a lot of the same problems. You know, these laws were passed with a state of knowledge in 1970 or 1980 or 1985. And it's such a political hot potato to move them that we're simply laboring along. And all the agencies can do is sort of is sort of offer guidance and not actually force people to stick to the guidance because, you know, we're stuck with the letter of the law. And any, so in any case, we wanted, we want to, we almost have to, there's, there's strong sociological pressures to pretend that we know that we have the answers already. We know that we, we want to believe that we know basically everything that's important to know about physics. We want to believe that we know everything that's basically important to know about biology, medicine. <clears throat> we want to believe that we basically have all the answers we need about human psychology and morality and so on. And so, that's that's comforting to people, and certainly people in religious backgrounds have a tendency to look back and say, well, there was a golden age, you know, whether you place it in 1950 or you place it in 1450 or you place it in 1250, 1250s, you know, a possibility, um, more so than 1450, and certainly more so than 1950. But nevertheless, you know, we, we look back, and if we could just get back to that, and have the comfort of, we don't really need to change. Um, we don't really need to change our understanding, we're not, we're not going to have that enhanced. I mean, because the opposite, you know, which is, of course, as Bill's pointing out, upon, sort of the approach that people are taking, you know, in, in other... Uh, areas of society, other other subcultures of society, want to just discard everything. You know, the the mere fact that someone thought this way in 1850 means that it must be wrong. By that very by that very token, essentially, it must be wrong. And so we're on a constant hunt to destroy as much inherited wisdom as we possibly can. Because by God, those people were all racists and sexists and superstitious and you know, so on down the line. Which, of course, is not really the case either. Uh, we don't, we have, and, and even those people act as if they have all the answers, right? <laughs> you, th you think about the, the, the strange things that have happened in the society and our legal system in the last 30 years. 
with regard to sexuality, with regard to homosexuality, with regard to marriage. You know, we've we've gone from things that no one no one had on the table in 1985 or 1975 or certainly 1965 to those being well of course that's the way there's no way that you you know you bigot you can't possibly imagine that things could i mean we yes we can imagine that things are uh not actually that way this is a new idea it hasn't been tested it's been asserted that's the hard that's the hard cold truth things have been tested things have not been tested they've been asserted um Psychology is a damn hard science. People have something they it's it's very difficult to call out what you want to believe is true from what you're actually seeing in your data. It, it's very hard to ask the appropriate questions and set the study up to actually try to potentially falsify what you already think going into the study. It's it's extremely extremely difficult. <clears throat> As people of faith anyway, let's come back to that. I'd like to propose to you John 16 verses 12 and 13. I still have much to tell you, but you cannot yet bear to hear it. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, he will guide you, future tense, into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak what he hears, and he will declare to you what is to come. Now admittedly, that's pretty vague. I wouldn't want to build an entire exegesis on just those two verses. But... I want you to at least look at that the, those verses and realize that things we should be open to new understanding of things we think we already know. Especially, you know, your hot-button political or moral issue of the day. But also science, also your basic philosophy, also your metaphysics, to, you know, to bring it back to the original topic here. So let's let's dive into this statement shades of gray this is something i want to do before we wrap up here you know i hear that phrase a lot i don't even know i don't feel any great certainty that i even know what people mean when they say oh it's not black and white it's shades of gray here's what i think just just not to state this as normative just to warn you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is what's going on inside my own head when I hear that statement. Or this is these are the things, different ones of these things are liable to be floating through my head if I hear you say that phrase. So, one thing, you know, there must actually be white and black. There must actually be truth and fiction, for example. I think there actually is good and evil. There are there are white and black. Now, there's gray. And the nice thing about gray in the modern world is, you know, I can get in my uh, my image manipulation software of choice and find out exactly how gray it is. You know, how, however many notches of intensity I have between pure white and pure black, uh, I can I can measure it out. It's true. So I think people mean. I get the impression that people mean by shades of gray. Often a kind of, you know, shrugging, throwing up your hands. Well, we can't possibly know anything. Because, again, we humans tend to be on and off, black or white. We, we, make, we oversimplify things. That's another aspect of the bureaucratic mindset. If you have six parts per billion benzene in this groundwater, you're over the limit. If you have four parts per billion benzene in this groundwater, you're fine. Well, that's not reality, but, again, you can see 
the sociological pressures to treat it that way. So likewise, you know, I look at myself, Lord knows I'm a shade of gray. I think I'm a little whiter than I used to be. I think I'm actually several steps whiter than I used to be 10 years ago. I look at my life and I see the things that I recognize as good growing, and I look at the things that I recognize as bad diminishing at the expense of the good, or, I'm sorry, the good growing at the expense of the bad across a lot of fronts in my life. And we can judge actions, you know, so I think at some point, Pope Benedict went so far as to say, you know, he commented in, in, in response to some, you know, being peppered with some questions about homosexuality, you know, so he gave, I think he gave the example of even like a homosexual prostitute. Okay. Someone who's probably, and, and again, this is, this is completely different from the question of whether they, you know, whether they're sinning or not even, because we don't know what they do and don't know, um, but our working hypothesis as Christians is, you know, that's probably not the way to, that's, that, that's an actual moral evil. And whether the people engaged in it recognize it or not, which is an important separate question to recognize, the, the universe is nevertheless worse for every time that that sort of behavior is engaged in. Nevertheless, if you, if you use a condom while you're engaged in that behavior, and thereby protect both yourself and the person you're engaging in some behavior with from transmitting a certain disease, that is a step in the right direction. You've changed from one shade of gray to a lighter shade of gray, and to whatever small extent, that's something to be celebrated, because it's a step in the right direction. And that's, you know... People in 12-step programs have a state, have a saying, progress, not perfection. Because you can get stuck. I can get stuck. Oh my gosh. Um, First 30 years of my life, again, you know, ringing the bell right there. You can get stuck assuming that you have to change everything right now and that you're somehow fundamentally not acceptable if you don't leap from wherever you're at to white, to purest white right now. And that's not possible. You have to progress through the different uh, shades of gray to get there. Wherever you're at, look in the white direction and take the step that's in front of you now. Just like right now, I would kind of rather not be necessarily working on this podcast. I would not necessarily prefer to be doing whatever else. You know, I I prefer not to have taken time to pray this morning. Uh, There's several things I would rather be doing that would be more fun for me right now. But, you know, I, I know that in the longer run, the toxicity symptoms, the recognition that I'm wasting my life has caught up with me, and therefore I'm doing what I can. Is this podcast the best thing that's ever been produced? No. <laughs> Heavens no. But I'm getting there. I'm better at it than I was three episodes ago, and if I do it for a year, I'll be a lot better than I was today, and more options will open up to me that I can go further in the right direction. That's what I think by Shades of Grey. All right, so we're past half an hour. Let's wrap this up with a little bit of something hopeful that Bill was uh, fishing for at the end there. What is something that scientific research has opened up for us? You know, to give an example, 
and it's hard for me to know what I've said out loud in the podcast and what I've merely read. What I'm reading right now is this awesome book by a man named Stephen Barr. You can go find him on YouTube and elsewhere. And he has a book called Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. I read books. I don't really listen to YouTube lectures. The information data transfer rate for a book is so much higher for me. And that's, that's the key. That's what makes me so happy and satisfied is higher information transfer rates. So I've been reading Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. That's a fantastic book. Even if you're an atheist, and I hope there are materialist atheists who at least come back and listen to some of these episodes. Maybe not this one. Maybe some of my later ones. But hopefully at some point. Even if that's your outlook and you have no intention of changing, just reading this book will put you in touch, likely enough, with just some really interesting developments in science in the last few decades. And in the philosophy of science. Things, you know, issues surrounding quantum physics. The Lucas-Penrose hypothesis about whether the human mind could ever actually be reduced to a computer. It's not even the best stuff. Um, the different sorts of anthropic coincidences and the different ways we can try to explain them. Um, a whole bunch of things like that. I also can't recommend highly enough, if you can get your grubby little nubbies on it, there is now a rather old book by a pioneer of quantum physics called Arthur Compton, The Freedom of Man. And the first few chapters of that are very simple, very accessible, uh, very fascinating treatment of the question, you know, the age-old question now, you know, at least four centuries old since in the post-Newton universe, you know, so the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, it really seemed like the way to think, and I, I, as I recall, Laplace may have been the first one to sort of point this out explicitly that we know, or at least that we recall, that if you could know the trajectory of every particle, and you know, the position and trajectory of every particle in the universe, and in the classical paradigm you could, you would know exactly where they would go. You would know, again, you would know their forms, and you would know their accidents precisely, and you would be able to predict the entire future of the universe based on that which leaves no room for anything that any of us would really recognize as human freedom unless we're engaged in a sort of uh, philosophical gymnastics that some people do and like to engage in because they're very wedded to the idea of materialism and that there is absolutely nothing beyond the physical universe and that this consciousness that we have can somehow be explained in a purely physical mechanism, although one of the most popular uh, approaches to that is to simply deny that there's anything to explain at all. Be that as it may. If you wanted, in the in that deterministic epoch of, you know, say about 1650 to 1910, 1505 at least, if you wanted to be, uh, if you wanted to believe that somehow something like a soul, something not material, could somehow affect the human body, scientifically speaking, well, you know, good luck. You know, how, how are you going to possibly break this, you know, chain of causality, what could possibly ever affect, because of course, you know, the whole point of having free will is that at some point, your choice can affect your body, and you can choose to, you know, break a commandment or not, you can choose to kill someone or not, you can choose to steal something or not, you can choose to utter lies or not, and, you know, so that, that's critical, there has to be some way to cross the threshold from your will, whatever that is, to your body, and presumably your brain is going to be the intermediary there. The strange thing about quantum physics is that all of a sudden there's a hole big enough to drive a Mack truck through, 
because we no longer have this iron determinism, we have what at least appears to be a probabilistic system where there is all the room in the world. It would be almost impossible to set up the experiment to ever check whether, you know, at certain points, certain atoms and certain molecules and certain neurons of my brain, something is tweaking the probabilities a little bit, at least a little bit, so that I do at least have some chance of knocking my neurons off of, and of course, even without free will, even without any sort of spiritual influence on this, we recognize that, you know, our behavior is not deterministic at the very least. Maybe it's not, maybe there's, maybe it doesn't make any sense for us to say we have, quote, control over it. Maybe it's simply random processes, just like it appears to be in every other laboratory process. But we at least have a hole big enough to drive a Mack truck through where a soul could be affecting human brains in a, you know, in a way that is actually completely coherent and consistent with the idea of free will as it's been understood for, you know, obviously pretty much as long as humans have ever thought that far about it. Ever since humans have held each other responsible for anything. And of course that's a huge issue, um, how much free will we have. That's a huge issue that we'll tackle at a later date. Um, but the weird, the even weirder thing about quantum physics is that it almost seems to demand, certainly the, in the sort of, um, Copenhagen interpretation, um, which there are competitors to, but there are problems with all of the competitors. Um, all of them demand something strange from you. Uh, so, so in, in any case, most of us are still sitting somewhere near the Copenhagen interpretation. Um, there's some recognition that, you know, a quantum process happens, and there's this probability distribution of, say, where the electron is going to be in the slit experiment, or the photon, or for that matter, whether this um, atom of this uh, radioactive element has decayed or not. And it seems to really, the mathematics demands that it stay in that uncertain state, like Schrodinger's cat, until you open the box, look and see whether the cat is dead, whether the nucleus has decayed, or whether the photon came in at detector A or detector B. And it really doesn't, the mathematics does not work out unless you have this sort of collapse of the wave function by it being observed. And of course then you ask, what does it being observed mean? Because even if you have the situation, okay, I'm taking a photograph of it, I'm storing this photograph on my hard drive, and then I'm going to come consult it later on, you're still in the situation where actually the data on your hard drive is in an uncertain state until you come and look at it. This turns out to be philosophically very hard to get rid of, that there has to be, there almost has to be an observer, an external observer outside physics in order for this to work out conceptually. Again, many people think this is simply a problem area and we'll find some other solution to it eventually, and we very well may. I wouldn't want to dis I wouldn't want to discount that uh, possibility at all. Um, I do not want to get myself in the position of liking this sort of hypothesis simply because it provides us what looks like a demand for something like a human soul, or at any rate, some sort of non-physical interaction with the physical. But in any case, if you want to look for uh, reasons to hope, 20th century physics for a person of faith actually has tons of reasons to hope. And again, pick up 
Arthur Compton's Freedom of Man, or Stephen Barr's Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, and uh, and have a look at that. All right. So that's that's so second millennium for this week. Get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter, or on our uh, website at tssm.podbean.com. Thanks. <laughs>